Hi, secreters and history lovers. Welcome back. Um, it's June 1st, and today we are going to be talking about the pearl, the Asian painting for the secret, um, a treasure hunt book. And we're going to be discussing the historical elements of the painting. Um, its origins, what's affiliated with it, and other possibilities along the way. So we'll hop right into it. I have, as you see, a couple of the um, maps listed here on the side. The top map is one of the very first maps that was attributed to what they thought the area of Cathay uh, originally was one of the very first maps that it was actually mapped on. And a map below it that is showing um, as some of the tribes in the north and to the uh, west of China were kind of pushing along and making Cathay smaller and smaller and smaller. <laughs> until it finally dissolves and it's no longer on any maps I think around 1688. So what does this all mean? Well I know some people have probably already researched and they understand that Cathay is a, a romantic name, a poetic name for the territory of China. So but what's interesting here and especially with the secret book and how it's kind of written and twisted in certain uh, rabbit hole fashions as we could say um, darting in and out, kind of like whack-a-mole. Um, China has a very complicated history of dynasties. And when we look and see that the name Cathay originates from the word Catan. And of course, that's a para-Mongolic nomadic people. And they ruled the Lao dynasty in northern China. So, what's interesting though, and the further you go whenever you are researching the Catan people, um, and I have posted a lot of links and um, descriptions for how the name has changed over time with additional links on my Patreon that you can go and subscribe there and read about uh, the various elements of Cathay and really its importance in history as far as the Silk Road the opium um, crisis uh, that was imported by the Astor family, John Jacob Astor, um, and we'll get into all that. But for all intents and purposes, this is actually a word that is also Tartarian. And you say, well, wait a minute, the Tartars are supposed to be Russian. Cathay is supposed to be Chinese, and that's the way it's written in the book that we have to understand that in some ways this is almost one begets the other, and you say, why? Why would Byron <laughs> write it in, in this way where, wait a minute, if I'm reading about Cathay and it comes from Catan, and the Catan people are, you know, based out of and around Yurger and around a Russian area, what I'm confused. And you should be. Because I think that he's wanting us to really dissect 
not only where these peoples come from, but also how they're connected. Because if you look at the front of the book and Byron is um, dedicating the book to his Russian friends in the darkness, we, we know that Russia is obviously very communist and we also know that China, also very communist. So in 1980, in 81, we're just putting these books together, or this book together, and he's going into these different elements of, you know, Chinese spying with the glitches, if you notice they're written about in the book. And in the back of the book, when we are talking about the Russian element of um, the tax burden and and how governments essentially, if left unchecked, will ultimately try to rule over every aspect of your life and keep you at a certain level, which communism does. So, this is why I believe these two paintings, both the Russian and the Chinese painting, are so interconnected. And I know that John Palancar had mentioned that, you know, it's like bookends um, in one of his interviews, looking at the paintings, bookends from one end of the United States to the other. And I think it's important to note that when you really do look up the Catan people, you understand that that's an area of Tartary. So when, in fact, all of these groups, both Catan, the um, the Tartars, Cathay, all have a very close beginning together in those regions. And <clears throat> the Catan, they are also known as Kidan uh, in Chinese. And they were actually a part of the eastern inner well, originating in the eastern inner Mongolia. And and we can't forget, too, that up around those, t those areas we have Manchurian as well, right? Because sometimes it can get super confusing. Um, there have been so many dynasties that have warred over each other in China um, for, whew, you know, since the beginning of time, obviously. I mean, these sections of people that we are talking about, we're going back to 386 to 534 CE. And even prior to that, these really um, base level beginnings of these peoples. And I'm going to share a link here uh, on my YouTube for folks to be able to read about the Catan and the Lao Dynasty. Um, but also talking a little bit about what kinds of properties, when we talk about the fairies in the secret book, what properties they bring and how they got here, right? And we know we've talked a lot about um, the Silk Road. The Silk Road was an ancient trade route. It linked the Western world and, well, the Western world, and really the rest of the world eventually, but with the Middle East and Asia. And it was a major conduit 
for trade with the Roman Empire and China. And then later between medieval European kingdoms and China. And I also have posted uh, the trade routes. You can look them up if they're also on my Patreon. I go a little bit more into detail there. But, you know, where did it start and where did it end? So the Silk Road began in north-central China in the uh, Xi'an province, or what is actually in modern-day uh, Shanxi province. And a caravan track stretched along the west, um, along the Great Wall, across the Palmers, through Afghanistan, and into the Levant and Anatolia. So its length was about 4,000 miles, um, or 6,400 kilometers, and goods were then shipped to Europe via the Mediterranean Sea, once it traveled over. And so the Chinese merchants would export their silk to Western buyers from Rome and later from Christian kingdoms. <clears throat> Wools, gold, and silver would then travel eastward. And it's important to note this because, you know, apart from material goods, religion was one of the, the West's major exports along the Silk Road. Early Assyrian Christians took their faith to Central Asia and China. And while merchants from the Indian subcontinent exposed China to Buddhism. And then, of course, sadly, disease also traveled along the Silk Road. And many scholars uh, believe that the bubonic plague traveled and was spread to Europe uh, from Asia, causing the Black Death pandemic in the mid-14th century. So, not only was the road prolific in goods, it was prolific in disease. And when you think about it, um, for a time, that was really kind of the MO for all the Europeans, right? Traveling around, going to different places, and, and bringing back goods and disease. <laughs> And, of course, we know when Marco Polo went to China and found China and stayed there for a few years, um, he knew that area as, or what was called Cathay as well. And he obviously, he wrote his books about his travels, which are interesting. They are translated, and you can get translations and people's, um, I know there's other books that have been written about him and his translations, also really something interesting to look at. When we talk about silk, we know that that was one of the only places the silkworms would grow in those climates and produce a very fine silk, which was, you know, desired by all the other parts of Europe and, and Rome. And then you have the flip side of things, which, you know, aside from great commerce uh, and positive good things, 
we have the not so great things. So, and this is where it gets super interesting. And I've posted a picture here of some early Chinese uh, folks smoking their opium. Um, John Jacob Astor, the Astor that we know from New York City, uh, was one of the first really multi-millionaires uh, of what would become, well, it is the new world, but what would become the United States. And he used to smuggle opium. Uh, his enormous fortune was made by sneaking opium into China against imperial orders. And the resulting riches made him one of the most powerful merchants and also helped create the world's first widespread opioid epidemic. Now, when you think Aster, you think Aster Place, the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. Aster's name is all over New York City. He was born in Germany, though, immigrated here. So it's interesting to see <clears throat> how some immigrants, when they came here and made their fortunes, some did their fortunes uh, probably a little bit more uh, morally, I guess you could say, <laughs> and not getting people all hooked on drugs. Uh, but also, let's not forget that Astor started a pretty serious fur trade, right? And we also know that uh, he has a name for himself out in Washington State where he had put his outpost, which would make sense because with China being over across the Pacific and then coming up into what would be the, you know, state of Washington, the sound uh, up there in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, sorry, it's Portland, or it's around Oregon. So all of that area, and then would traffic all the way back through the Appalachian, all the way back to New York City. They would traverse some furs down the Mississippi River, uh, which was a really well-known um, transport route. But <clears throat> when Astor began to sell his furs in New York, he kept tabs on Americans' new China trade, too. And, and really, the country had a long-standing obsession with Chinese goods. So, especially tea, because we know we love our green tea and all our black teas. And, ah, uh, I love tea. I'm a tea drinker. But during British rule, Americans trade was under England's thumb and the East Indian Company had a monopoly on trade with China. So the Revolutionary War changed all of that. And the new United States was now free of the monopoly and they could trade free with China any old time they liked. So the American ships began to sail directly to Canton. And that is obviously where we get the term Cantonese, uh, which sometimes 
if you go to Chinese restaurants, they may have Cantonese chicken or they may have things named similarly that comes back to that area. And the flow of commerce that followed made millionaires, essentially, out of the intrepid men who plunged into that trade. Now, that's quite a lot for discussing. And you say, but Karen, how does this play into the secret book? Well, it plays in quite a bit. Because in 1980 then, so we were traveling back from the 80s, or from today to the 80s, going back in time, and we look at the glitches on page 190. And... The history of the glitches are oriental, as it's evidenced by their fondness for long scrolls that read right to left, top to bottom, or any damn way, but left to right. <laughs> so that's Byron, obviously. There's a, there's a little pun in there, right? Lampooning. It is acknowledged among historians that the Japanese were passing the time with symbolic logic, riddles, and when the Europeans were still living in ditches, and this fact suggests that glitches immigrated from the floating world to the new one. Now, I want you to pay particular attention where it says that. I'm under the history section, by the way. It says the new one. Where's the word play here? Well, we know that new does not need to be capitalized, so we can underline that letter. And then you go and a little further where they first inspired and then infested the computer, right? We don't have to capitalize computer here. So there is another C. So for my word finders, for my cryptographers who are watching and reading these books, you have to pay careful, close attention to the letters. Where is Byron capitalizing where they don't need to be capitalized? Where is Byron italicizing where they don't need to be italicized? This is all part of wordplay. And you say, well, how do you figure what does it mean whenever he capitalizes these words? Well, if he's told everyone in the Japanese translations that he uses cryptography, he's using a cryptocipher. And you say, well, what kind of cryptocipher would that be? Well, it could be a Caesar shift. It could be a Jefferson cipher wheel. It could be even if he wants to really teach us things and history, he could have even used something along the lines of an enigma. You say, well, why would he do that? Because that was a horrible thing that the Nazis employed on the Jewish people. Well, that's right. And I think that would be in the lesson. These are options for us to look at because through the lessons, we're going to glean the clues. And so it's worth trying all of the letters in different cipher breakers, which you can look up online. Um, oftentimes, there is one website, and I think it's just like CryptoCiphers or CryptoDeciphering.com, something like that. 
where you can plug in these letters and they'll spit they'll spit them out in the various ciphers for you. So, you know, whether that means he's trying to give us a hint of a place like a state name and maybe it's only the state abbreviation. These are things that we have to look at and you have to pay really close attention to because there's, you know, all bets are off until a cask is out of the ground. All theories are open to possibility until something is pulled out of the ground. And these are the things that we have to pay attention to and look at, right? So then that leads us back to the gem. After all of this history with Cathay and China and its dynasties from the Yuan to the Jin uh, to the Lao and many more, um, we have the gold sea pearl, the golden sea pearl. So the golden pearl is the rarest and the most expensive of all the pearls. Um, they are highly, highly cherished in Chinese culture. And so when we're looking at why Byron would have made, he didn't just throw out a simple pearl, okay? It's the golden pearl for a reason. When you know the history, when you study about these places and you see what they are and you see how they've evolved and you see where these people might have wanted to come, especially into the new world. Now, mind you, in America, we have a pretty large influx of many types of immigrants. Chinese immigration, of course, fell under the Asian Land Act a little while back in the early 1900s, if we remember. So there was a time where we were only allowing so many of them to come and then we completely stopped uh, their immigration. And then we kind of allowed them again to trickle in here or there. But then, you know, World War II and we're throwing all of these Asians, Japanese, Chinese alike into Asian concentration camps in our America. And so at that time, there's a lot of Asians that live along the Western United States, particularly up around Oregon and Washington State, California, which I know most people are of the mind that the cask for the Chinese, the Golden Pearl, is actually in San Francisco. It may be. Um, we do know that both San Francisco and New York City both have Chinatowns, and we know that San Francisco's Chinatown predates New York City's Chinatown by around 14, approximately 13, 14, 15 years. However, there are more Chinese that live around New York City than in San Francisco. And there's even more Asians that live in Canada than the United States. And they are really kind of in areas of around Toronto and Vancouver, British Columbia. 
which is Seattle's sister city, by the way. So these are things that we think about whenever we're looking at the puzzle. We're trying to understand where Byron would have lent us to go. Where would we be led? Where is he trying to highlight these groups? Because if we look at Boston, Boston can get tricky, right? Because you would think it would be Irish because we have the Boston Celtics, but no, no, no. In Byron's mind, that's too easy. It's too easy. So we're dealing on a level of genius here that we really have to put our thinking caps on and walk through the process, learn these things about the histories, understand why he would have been, you know, talking about and why there are even glitches in the book, right? Because at the time, and even until today, we have a lot of what? Apple products being made where? China, right? Computers, phones, electronics, speakers, cameras, you name it. So not only was Byron teaching us the history, but he was also teaching us the current time, right? And what they contribute to our society. So... With that, I hope that you guys can get logged on and look at Patreon, become a subscriber. It's five bucks a month, but I have a lot more information on my Patreon where I go into detail about the pearls, about <clears throat> terracotta warriors, discussing the Great Wall, immigration, and much, much more. So thanks for tuning in with me today. And if you can, Follow us on our Facebook page. Find our Facebook group. We're on Patreon. I have my website and YouTube, Discord, Twitter. Come join us. Come join the hunt. And we'll be glad to have you there. So with that, you guys have a super fantastic rest of your week. And fairy on. <laughs>